So, uh, welcome, guys. Last uh, last week, um, we started talking about uh, the kind of overview of the the story of redemption, and um, and we started uh, by talking about just kind of the story we've talked about so far, right? Um, that God creates humanity for partnership. That's the very beginning. That humanity breaks that partnership. And then that God sets out to redeem humanity. Okay? So it's a simple story. Um, Adam and Eve fall. Um, God sets out a plan of redemption. And the way that uh, God sets out to redeem humanity is that... um, he calls a people into partnership. And so we see this with Noah and with Abraham and Moses, that when God wants to redeem the world, his first step in that process is to call someone to help him. So God sets out to redeem the world uh, from its uh, its, uh, violence. And so the flood is coming, and now God calls Noah to build an ark to save humanity and the rest of of the living creatures, right? And then um, the world uh, is full of evil, and so God calls Abraham to set out to bless all nations, to be a different kind of people who will bless all the world. So that redemptive process is what God is calling these people to. Um, And one of the big biblical words that we see when we're talking about God calling a people into partnership is covenant. So God creates a covenant with Noah, and God creates a covenant with Abraham, and God creates a covenant with Moses. And that covenant is a deal. It's an arrangement, right? This is, this is, these are the terms of our deal. Now, because we have a covenant, we are partners, right? And so this is, this is, what, this is how the Bible talks about that calling into partnership. Um, of, of Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and, and all these people. And um, so God calls them into covenant, into partnership, so that they can participate with him in his uh, mission to redeem the world. But of course, uh, what happens is that God's people break that partnership. They fail to live up to that partnership. They fail to continue on with that. And so we see this in the story of Israel over and over and over. They, they continually fail at this. They continually fail to live up to the thing that God has asked them to do and called them into. And so when Jesus comes, he critiques the Jewish people for failing to be a light to the world, for failing to bless all nations, right? They haven't been that example that um, God wanted them to be and that positive influence. And so what's the um, ultimate uh, resolution to this? What's the, what's the u- ultimate answer to uh, this dilemma? Bible class answer is Jesus, right? So, um, yeah, God sends his son. And um, as we talked about last time, uh, Jesus is the answer to this problem because Jesus himself is the ultimate partnership between God and man. Right? God created humanity for partnership. When things go wrong, God calls a people into partnership 
as his act of redemption, as his work of redemption. And when even that fails, he creates a partnership. He becomes a partnership, right? So talk about Jesus is both human and divine. And so in that, he is the embodiment of this partnership between God and man. He is the fulfillment of the partnership that God wanted. Um, And so because of that, he um, uh, he is the new covenant, right? He is that new deal between God and humanity. And we're going to see um, how that plays out. We talked about some of the ways that that's actually um, said in the New Testament. Um, but that becomes, uh, that becomes very significant in several ways. But this is a more intimate sort of partnership, right? God, it's not just that Jesus is the partnership between uh, God and humanity because he's doing the things that humans were supposed to do. It's a, it's, he's the partnership between God and humanity because he is, in his essence, a partnership between God and humanity. He is, in his body, in his flesh, in his blood, he is a partnership between God and humanity. And so um, we'll, we'll see where some of these themes, themes pick up. But um, what that brings us to is, an, is it opens a new possibility in the scriptural story and a new level of partnership between God and humans. And we, up till now, we've been talking about partnership, and now, so we're going to talk about participation. So these kind of um, maybe sound like the same sorts of things. Um, so the way we want to distinguish the ideas here is that so far we've been talking about partnership with, right? Like walking alongside of. So, you know, the Genesis story talks about Adam and Eve walking, you know, with God and and in the cool of the garden, right? So walking alongside God. But now we have the idea of not just partnership with, but participation in. And this becomes a huge theme in the New Testament. And I want to suggest that a lot of the things that we see in the New Testament, we've missed maybe some of the ways that this ties in, the way that this is part of this overarching theme of God calling us into participation in Christ. Um, so let's, uh, that's probably pretty abstract and confusing, so let's, let's kind of look at a few different ways um, that the uh, scripture talk about it. Um, Hebrews 3.14, for we have become partakers of Christ. Right, so this sounds like what does the what does the word partaker sound like or partake? Meal. Yeah. 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 Something you ingest, right? Something you consume. Right. Um, here's another uh, example. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. First Corinthians six, seventeen. So here we have the idea of joining, right? Becoming one spirit with God or with the Lord, right? So there, there's two different ways of saying it. Talking about like consuming, consuming Christ in a way, um, but joining him, becoming one spirit with him. Um, or Second Peter 1, uh, 3 through 4, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. 
So this is kind of where we get that term participate or participation, right? He's calling us to participate in the divine nature. Now, what, is, you know, what does that mean? There's all kinds of things to unpack there. But these are some of the ways that this shows up over and over again across the New Testament, just in these different terminologies. And the thing there about like walking along with, partnering with God, alongside God, is still there. But now we have this additional theme of participating in a more intimate way in that we are becoming part of Christ and Christ is becoming part of us. And in that process, we are, just as Jesus is kind of this intimate partnership between God and humans, we are becoming part of that intimate partnership as well. So this actually starts, uh, this kind of theme uh, starts in, in the Gospels um, uh, in some of the language that Jesus uses. Okay, so John 15, 1 through 5, Jesus uses this analogy. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So what do we like what do we think about this? What are our normal kinds of readings of this? What would we take away? What does it mean to uh, for us to remain in him as he's suggesting here? Okay. Yeah, there's an idea of like life flowing through this, right? This kind of continuous. Um... And for, uh, yeah, the bearing fruit or uh, testimony, effective testimony of the kingdom of God uh, and the things that are important to the heart mm-hmm. of God has to flow through. The, the life and radical teaching of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, there's no connection to the things that are at the heart of who the Father is. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, it seems like Jesus is saying, if you want, you know, you want people to really recognize the kingdom for what it is, and for the Father to be truly glorified and honored and known for who He is, mm -hmm. then you have to stay connected mm -hmm. to this radical worldview that I bring. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to get there. Maybe. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it seemed like maybe the traditional Orthodox uh, way to read that is to you got to keep believing in Jesus or you're going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or you're not going to be, you're going to be pruned and you're not going to be connected to the Father in some kind of, uh, you know, post-eschaton uh, type thing. But it, it seems more from a practical teaching sense that it's saying this is, you know, this is, this is how the kingdom is mm -hmm. truly, you know, announced. And it's mm -hmm. seen, I mean, it seems yeah. so... I mean, the, the whole teaching of the Jesus thing is so incredibly counterintuitive and radical yeah. today more so than it ever has been. So it just seems like yeah. reading it that way, interpreting that way, makes a lot of sense to me. He connects it, he's, he's connecting it to bearing fruit, right? And that, so that's a, yeah, that's an interesting thing. It's not, it's not just, oh, do this and, you know, you don't go to hell or something. He's saying... Um, be part of this organic process. Life needs to flow from God through me to you so it can then turn into something in the world, right? And um, uh, mixing metaphors, that, that kind of, you know, we, sometimes we talk about like, okay, we're, you know, we're Christ's hands or something. And, and he's almost saying this, right? Like he's the vine and they're the branches, like they're the they're the means that the fruit is going to show up, but he's going to be the source of life for that. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. There's there's a lot packed in here, but he's doing a very organic sort of thing, like organic unity between that he's inviting his followers into. Um, <laughs> Demanding his followers <laughs> go, go into right. Um, the, bottom, the second paragraph he says it three times about mm -hmm. being a part of him. Yeah. That if you're not a part of him, there's no fruit. Period. Yeah. Not more fruit or less fruit or anything like that, but it's you know. Yeah. If you're not with me, there's no fruit. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it also seems to be interesting that he's warning them not to go off and try to plant them. <laughs> it's about planting themselves also. You take a, you know, a grape, it's a, what they're talking about. The grapes are pruned yeah. all the time. You know, the vineyards are very well maintained. And you don't hear about people just planting a grape. They take cuttings and splice oh, them yeah. in and things like that. They don't deal with the root a lot. Unless mm. they have a vine that's growing, they plant hmm. any grapes they want. And it's kind of hmm. where they get their fruit. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. This this uh, thing of the vine and and so forth shows up again. Um, Paul talks about the olive olive tree, right? So he used that instead of a, a grapevine or whatever. But um, but that similar similar sorts of uh, metaphors. Um, okay, so this is this is uh, maybe a lot to grapple with. So let's jump into something even uh, deeper and weirder. Um, 
because uh, maybe the most provocative and weird thing that Jesus ever says is uh, this, uh, eat my flesh, right? And um, we, uh, so, well, okay, there's so much to unpack here, but let's look at the, the passage where this shows up. So John 6, um, there's, there's a whole lot going on uh, here. And what has just happened is that Jesus has fed the 5,000, okay? He's fed 5,000 people. And so now he goes across the sea and people are following him and they're saying, okay, we're with you. We're, we're all on board this uh, because you're obviously uh, manufacturing food miraculously and we want in on that. And so Jesus keeps pushing back at him. At first, he kind of re- ran away from them in a sense. Uh, uh, he went across the sea. They, they found him. He says, don't, you know, he's like, you're following me because of this food that I made, but you need to be looking for a different kind of food than this. And they keep coming back to him and they were like, well, Moses gave us manna from heaven. And he, and so they're trying to like, they're trying to banter with him. And he, and, and he says, you need a different kind of manna from heaven. And they keep pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And finally, he just kind of, I think he, um, he goes really, really provocative, and he says this, uh, this series of things. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread of life that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate the manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing of it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And I think that's the understatement of of the Gospels, right? He's shocking the people. Like he's he's just going full-blown into something like purposely just like really requiring a lot of them. And at this point, almost everyone who's following him leaves, except for maybe the 12 and maybe a few others. And he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter famously says, um, where else will we go? Right, so he, he is deliberately being provocative. And I think sometimes we think that Jesus is, you know, trying to smooth everything over and, um, with everybody, but, but he's not. He's, he wants them to realize that he's not just here to manufacture food and kind of like provide those things. He's trying to do something else. And so he's willing to keep pushing them and ask them to tackle this really hard saying and think through what it means and to come to him on those terms when they can accept it. And that's what a good teacher does, right? Um, Is 
ultimately um, brings you to the point where you need to kind of come to a leap in understanding. And at that point, then it's your, your uh, initiative to, to, um, to accept that. So this is, this is a really profound and dramatic thing. But, but what do we see in here, right? We see, all, you know, remain in me and I in you, right? Um, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Because what, what, is, that, what is that image, right? If you eat something, it becomes part of you. And if you're, and in, in that, like, um, you're becoming part of it, right? You're mingling together. You're part of this participation uh, between these two things. You become what you eat, so to speak, right? And so Jesus wants you to eat him, right? Um, the, uh, so I think we don't deal with this passage very much. We instead deal with, uh, a passage that is a little bit easier for us to wrestle with, um, which is um, the story of the Last Supper. Now, the book of John, which we were just reading, doesn't have um, this part of the Last Supper account. And so it has this, this instead, the story of Jesus telling them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. In, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, we get this little section of the Last Supper. This is from Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what do we typically take from this, or how do we read this most of the time? Right, which which means he's doing he's doing a pattern for us to repeat, I guess, right? Something like that. He's given us a continual body. Okay, Ex- explain that. Hmm. We can't drink his flesh and blood. He's dead. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. But and he's in heaven. He, okay. He transcended. He went to heaven, so hmm. he has given us. Disciples and us, something that hmm. we can use to, to eat his body and his blood, drink his blood. Okay. What else? What else what might we see in here? Mm-hmm. 
communing with him and with others, but we're also you know, taking, going to him yeah. to that, that knowledge, that yeah. word. Yeah. It's also a continuation <coughs> of the organic theme of partnership. Um, the yeah. branch and the vine metaphor um, mm-hmm. you know, works with this, that it's, um, yeah. that it's inseparable, that it's uh, symbiotic. Yeah. Or, I mean, that's the wrong thing. It's, it's a one, maybe more one way than that. But that it's an organic relationship that has to be continually um, yeah. involved. Okay. Yeah, there, I, I, like, I know we're all struggling with the language here, but, and, and the New Testament struggles with the language. Right? Like, there's so many different ways of talking about this. Sometimes the fact that it switches between all these different ways of talking makes us miss what it's doing over and over again. Right? But, but this is a big thing. This is a, big, um, a bigger concept than I, I would suggest, than, than almost anything else we deal with. And the New Testament is putting language to that in so many different ways. There's so many different like layers of this. Like you talked about the the vine metaphor. Well, now they're literally drinking from a vine while they're uh, figuratively <laughs> drinking from him, right? Um, but uh, if, if the other passages were heady, this is actually bringing together so many different things because they're taking the Passover, right? Which is part of the story of Israel's redemption. They're in the middle of the Passover meal when they're doing this, rather. Um, and so when, when Jesus is saying, um, saying these things, he is saying the Passover, I, like that story is me, right? The redemption, the story of redemption, it leads to me and I am that story. Like I am the culmination of, of that story. So that's one of the things he's saying. Uh, another thing he's saying is, um, is the, this is the blood of the covenant, right? So we talked about um, Jesus himself is that new covenant between God and humanity. He is that part, new partnership. And so his blood uh, is that covenant, and this is, um, this is brought up here, right? Um, and then, of course, yeah, um, take and eat. Uh, you know, eat my body, eat my, or drink my uh, blood. These are, every time I think, uh, those are hard things to say because they're provocative things, right? They're really kind of gross things to say, right? <laughs> but but he's, um, he's giving us this because it's a provocative idea, because he wants us to really think through this idea of him becoming part of us and us becoming part of him in the most organic and intimate way we can imagine. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot here and there's probably always more to unpack. Um, so, uh, yeah, th- I think this is a culmination of a lot of things in the, in the biblical story. Um, and I think we see this carried forward, particularly uh, in the writings of, of Paul. So 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. 
because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So what's he doing here? Yeah, if we're participating in Christ, then everyone else who is participating in Christ is now uh, is essentially participating with us, right? We're all in this kind of one um, unity. I think it's, it's important to realize that, that Paul almost always has a very practical thing in mind. Right? So he talks this kind of, uh, as my little brother says, deep theology um, to, uh, and then brings it to a, a point. And what we see here in his larger discussion is that he's emphasizing the need for unity in the groups he's talking to. And so in Corinth, he, as in most places, there is an um, implicit division between Jew and Gentile, between rich and poor particularly. Um, between different groups of people. And so he's re-emphasizing again and again they're one because they're participating in the one body and blood of Christ. Right? But yeah, we get the... the um, we, we moved from this idea of like, okay, now we're ingesting Christ and so now we're part of Christ's body to now there's a sense of like, okay, there's a, there's a body of Christ that has grown out of this Right? It's a much bigger thing. Um, so this is, so yeah, he's connecting um, this meal they eat together with what Jesus said, right? With this participation with each other, with this participation with Christ. Um, and this actually becomes a huge, huge theme for Paul, which is simply the body of Christ, right? Being part of the body of Christ. So uh, when we hear this term, like what, what things come to mind generally? Okay. What's, like, what are the implications if we uh, typically, like what, what would we just, if we say instead of church, we say body of Christ, like, you know, the body of Christ at... Uh, you know, this place, Marysville, or, you know, uh, what is, what might we, we be implying with that? Okay. Yeah. Unified. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes we, uh, we sometimes use this term body in our culture in a, in a different way. And uh, so we might say the um, governmental body or the parliamentary body or something like that, right? 
And I think sometimes that leads us to kind of make a mistake where we, we uh, implicitly think all that means is just a group of people, right? A body is a group of people, so the body of Christ is a group of people of Christ. Um, and that sometimes that mistake shows up in um, the fact that I, I've heard people say before, bodies of Christ, right? The bodies of Christ across the, the country or something. Paul never says bodies of Christ, right? There's, for Paul, there's one body of Christ. And, and he, because he's operating out of this organic sense, right? It's, it's a oneness. It's a unity. It's not just, okay, here's a group of people that are Christ people. It's that here are a group of people who are part of Christ. And wherever they are, they are part of this one thing. So it's an organic vision and sometimes uh, you know we we miss that right so here's the kind of big canonical text for this first corinthians 12 um, uh, just as a body though one has many parts but all its many parts form one body so it is with christ for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether jews or gentiles slave or free and we were all given the one spirit to drink even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And he goes on to talk about this kind of comical thing about, you know, the foot saying to the eye, I don't need you, and the hand saying, and he's comparing the fact that there's so many different things that are happening in the body, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So Paul has this, this big vision. He's here applying it in a, in a very big way, right? He's seeing it as like people literally being different body parts inside the body of Christ. And, um, and he goes on, this is, uh, like I said, Paul always has a practical thing. He's going on to talk about all the different gifts that people have and how they use them and work with them together. Um, but this, I think, in a way, we've maybe understated the significance of this because uh, if, if what I'm suggesting is true, that, that, the, that finally God gets his partnership in the person of Jesus... Jesus is the one who fulfills that partnership and fulfills it in an intimate way. Um, then becoming part of that partnership is the overarching theme of the New Testament. And when we see this thing about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, this is the kickoff of everything that's going to happen in the, in the New Testament. Being part of the body of Christ, being uh, participants in the body of Christ. And so, um, just to kind of point out how significant this is to Paul, um, I want to look at uh, two different passages. Ephesians 3, 
surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other times or in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This is the background of everything Paul does, right? He's on a mission to the Gentiles to bring the Gentiles into one body with the Jews, and he sees this as the mystery of Christ, this one body that can unite all of these different things. That's the mystery of Christ. That's the thing that he first realized that became the center of, of his work, okay? Um, another place he talks about it, Colossians 1. Uh, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's saying the same thing, different, some different words here, but this is, this is the, the mystery, is the one body of Christ, which, is that God, which, which means that, that Christ is bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles, which means that Christ is in you, um, which implies all the other things that Paul does. Um, and I'll point out one weird thing that Paul does here. Um, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now that uh, is a really, really... Um, I don't even know the word for it, ambitious statement, right? Like, what, what could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions that Paul can then supply, right? Um, I, I'm going to say, uh, and, and uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe you guys have some, some better insight into it than I I. Do, but what I see in that is this. Paul is part of the body of Christ, right? So because he is part of the body of Christ, he in, he's seeing his suffering as uh, part of Christ's suffering. Yeah, man, I was just thinking, uh, like, isn't this the passage that the Thomas Moore's of the world used for flatulence, like oh, mm. okay, and stuff like that. Yeah. Like that. I read it to say I am trying to compensate yeah, my yeah. own suffering. <laughs> what is lacking, and right. 
to, to feel the difference in the suffering of Christ in my own body. That, that's probably a wrong reading of it, but it seems like I just from my it's been a long time since I studied Thomas More, but like um, like that whole order of yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is this is a good maybe um, point. Uh, we've t- like we're touching on um, a lot of things that are that are big in Catholicism, right? Like this, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? In in Catholicism, uh, you get um, that taken very literally, right? They they think that the the communion is literally becoming the body and blood of Jesus, and you're consuming it, and it's literally becoming part of your, your flesh. And, um, and that's important. So, so important that you can't drop it on the floor. You can't, you know, like, it's, it's sacred, right? It's a very, it's a very literal thing. Um, and um, uh, so you can, you, you get this showing up in, in some um, Catholic things like stigmata, where the wounds of Christ are supposedly coming through their body, right? Um, so uh, we have to be r- real careful where we where we take this, right? Um, and uh, you know, as a good Church of Christ kid, I don't think that the the stuff is literally you know uh, transubstantiating, you know. But um, I do think it's it's significant for us to look at what is what is the meaning of this? Like, what is the meaning of us taking this, right? Because it's you know not it's not that okay this is literally human flesh but it is that this this really means something serious right now I don't think Paul in this passage is um, suggesting that he's going to go around whipping himself I think he's saying that he's doing all this work he's out there suffering and and so forth but he's not seeing this as um, uh, as a hardship. He's seeing this as a way that he is participating uh, in the work of Christ, and he's willing to suffer on behalf of the body of Christ um, and as part of that. Um, he doesn't separate hmm. in all of those stuff. Mm-hmm. The body is the body. Mm-hmm. There is no separation. Mm-hmm. So when he talks about the body here, he says his body, yeah. and he says my flesh, they're the same thing. Mm. Paul. Mm. As is the church he's talking to. He's talking to the church, you. Yeah. So they're a part of that same body too. Yeah. So if he's suffering, they're all suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, you're not suffering, but I am, so we all are. Yeah. And the reason it is is because I'm trying to get the message to the Gentiles, you. Yeah. And I'm suffering because of that. Therefore, you're suffering. Therefore, we're all in the body together. Christ suffered. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of plays a. Paul does that a lot. He kind of plays circular with words. And he does, yeah. But he doesn't ever separate. When he says my flesh, he's still talking about Christ's body. Yeah. Because he doesn't separate them. He says we're all one body, one flesh. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. There's. Yeah, he, he does so much there. Yeah, he's going. Yeah, so when you read that, yeah. you can't separate the two. Because mm-hmm. Paul doesn't. Yeah. And, and even writing, he doesn't. He says, you know, it talks about one body. Mm-hmm. Well, that means there's only one flesh, one blood. 
is all in Christ. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of people do want to separate the flesh from Christ's body, but Paul doesn't. Yeah. Um, let me, uh, th I want to look at this uh, passage. Um, that's a lot, so uh, we're, we're kind of out of time, so I want to just skip forward a little bit and, and um, just kind of hit some bullet points of, of a few places where this shows up. Um, uh, baptism, the, the way that baptism is explained and contextualized in the uh, New Testament. Um, Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, so too, we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians 2, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. In Galatians 3, 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's some passages where this baptism is played into this, this participation theme. They're doing the same action that Christ does, right? They're dying with him so that they can rise with him. And in that process, right, they're in various ways. They are in him, um, with him, uh, you know, all, all of these things. Um, this clothed yourselves with Christ is it, really interesting. Um, one of the things that I, I think sometimes we talk about when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we want God to see Christ, right? Um, but the, the New Testament doesn't limit that to the judgment seat of God, right? It's not that it's just when we show up for our legal kind of assessment that all of a sudden Jesus steps in. It's that the whole process is that we are clothed with Christ. We are part of Christ. We are with Christ and in Christ. And I think we, sometimes we want to limit that to these small things. But remember, Jesus doesn't limit it. Paul doesn't limit it. This, is, you know, this means bearing fruit. This means being one body. This has all these practical ramifications that are more than just, okay, when we show up at the judgment seat, we're okay. Um, and um, just a few more verses uh, that kind of play similar themes. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's Galatians 2. Colossians 3, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Or 2 Timothy 2, Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So the whole formula of the New Testament is that by, because we are now invited into participation with Christ, we live out that whole process. We are now part of the whole process, including the suffering, including the glorification, including all these things. And the way that we have seen this showing up over and over again are in these concepts, being part of the body of Christ, uh, taking the Lord's Supper, this is what it means, right? 
uh, baptism. This is what it means, a participation in Christ. And, um, uh, and then one more that we haven't, don't, haven't had time to touch on very much, but is the idea of the indwelling of the Spirit, right? Which, what can that mean other than that God is seeking to become part of us and to bring us to be part of him? Um, so we are way out of time. I, I hope to t- touch on, we've got one more week. I hope to touch on the uh, spirit and connect that to some of the themes uh, as we go into the apocalypse and talking about that, uh, the apocalypse as partnership with God. Uh, any last uh, thoughts or uh, comments? I know this is a lot of stuff and we've had to rush through a bunch. Um, heady, heady things. Uh, I hope this is helpful a a little bit, maybe giving some different way to look at some common things we do. I think this reminds me a lot of the uh, sacraments. Hmm. And that made you think of what, well, I I think that'd be a good, you know, to be very relevant to what is listed at least two of them Mm -hmm. in here. But how the sacraments are a, there are acts in which God, mm-hmm. there are things in which you do, which those things God works through in a mm-hmm. special way, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so those are very much, you know, right out, I guess, like, that can be relevant for what we're talking about with yeah. sacraments or these things. But. Yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts? See you guys next week. Thanks so much. Oh, man. So, yeah. Thanks for thanks for your comments too. Like. Uh. Yeah. I did like one thing. Oh, I know. It's good. Yeah, good job. Good job. Thanks.